Welcome back to Side Quest, episode 18, Final Fantasy VII, um, episode or segment seven. And back with me again is Mr. West of Chance. Mr. West of Chance, welcome back. Hey, good to be here. How's it going? And it's going well. And so today's show seems to be about beginnings and ends. And so it seems something that you've just done, not only with the Potter's Pod- Pockets uh, podcast, but also with your very own spearheaded project on Bookworm Games. It seems you've just come to an end of your initial uh uh you've played through your first game and you finished your first podcast segment yeah yeah i just uh completed the 33rd episode on the uh apple of enlightenment mostly um but also some kind of straight questions and general questions about earthbound and uh i think it i think it hangs together pretty good so um if i if i in some future point like make it into a more formal course i think there's a lot of good material there i can draw on and and for what it is right now i think it should be interesting to people who've played the game or have heard about it um or people who you know are coming to it from from a totally different area like from an interest in um in philosophy or literature i think it from either direction it can it can hold up so uh yeah i'm really i'm really excited about it and i'm uh thanks for and catch episode appreciate it yeah absolutely i uh i i more and more i think as i age and take more responsibility for what happens in the world around me will take on the role of ness's father that i learned about from you (laughs) taking photos and observing the special moments of others and thus making the moments more special by showing Uh, that i personally valued them so much that i wanted to save them in time for somebody else um, yeah. and thus modeling that sort of behavior, um, so that, you know, those around me understand that that is how one makes one's world special and unique. Um, and that seems to be a big part of what Earthbound, at least through what I listened to from what you said about it, uh, is, is about, is about, uh, growing up from childhood and understanding the appropriate way to relate to one's family members and one's immediate friends and one's community members around oneself. Um, yeah yeah it's interesting the the idea that the respect shown for a thing uh is sort of manifested in the attempt to to look at it uh think about it mm. um share it with people in the form of yeah maybe like a photo album like in earthbound um or or as a story right like what could speak more highly to an event than to want to memorialize it in story and uh so many of the great poems started that way right as oral um tradition and only later kind of get uh codified into um the written form um but but what an incredible act of uh of devotion right on the part of a people to to pass along such a thing over um generations and uh i I think it's it's uh, also sort of the way that the um the uh, gods are spoken of, right? As that uh, that audience to to the battles uh, and and affairs of men, uh, human beings are sort of the um, the most interesting story to the gods. It seems like uh, the way yeah. they're spoken of in the epics. And it's so interesting too the the difference between say like the prophet and or and, and say the scholar because it it is precisely sort of a comment that scholars make that certain pieces of literature and philosophy are unworthy of scholarly note, which hmm. doesn't seem to mean unworthy or, or not innately interesting, 
but rather does not belong within a fairly constrained body of research at a particular moment in time. And so mm. it's interesting that you notice that we seem to have a fundamental disagreement with uh, a contemporary scholar at a behavioral level, right? Because we refuse to maintain those, those smaller territorial bounds in terms of uh, what is considered worthy of note, right? We, we take mm. that which is more accessible to people around us and, uh, and also take a more pragmatic view of uh, not only how to express our views uh, without you know, a highly technical vocabulary, but also about uh, the value of the stories that have been publicly disseminated, which we take a vested interest in sort of explaining and amplifying and, and mm -hmm. enjoying and directing people's attention to the finer and, and some of the bigger details of, finer details yeah. where we can. Yeah, I, yeah, I think it's, I think it's very germane uh, to this whole project. And I well, so to jump in, this is something I know that Vince had mentioned at some point, and I would like to hear from him at some point more what he thought about it. But or maybe it was you who said it, that this story in Final Fantasy VII is a kind of uh, inverted uh, myth, uh, Christian myth. It's a kind it's a kind of um, Christ story, but uh, but but flipped upside down, inverted in Excellent. some way. Yeah. yeah. Do you yeah. remember that? Yes. I think I made that point and then Vince okay. sort of riffed on it. I think he developed the point more than I did, but I think that's a good jumping point, jumping off point for today. So I took some notes for this time. And so we have to catch a chocobo, which made me want to talk about the theme of gameplay versus story, which I think is mm -hmm. a major theme in not only how one perceives life, but also how one perceives uh, RPG play, because there is a major distinction between sitting back and watching the incredible story and then having to do the tedious details like catching a damn chocobo. Um, also, we have the Mikgar Solemn, and I think that's where the connection is going to be made when we talk about the snake that is impaled on a tree, which is mm -hmm. like a figure of transformation uh, 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 stuck on a tree or is sort of an inversion of the Christ symbol on the tree if Christ is, say, god or man or god man then the snake is obviously that which has antipathy for man milton's uh, lucifer and so the mm -hmm. i i guess if i were to just jump off my listing here because i can't help but amplify it every listener knows this by now is that what that sort of indicates to me at least as a first rate approximation and this might be wrong is that just as Sephiroth's sword, the Masamune, has no room for growth, all the material is mastered, and in fact, no material will uh, continue to grow on his sword, yeah. indicating he cannot progress or continue to transform. I think that this is sort of a negative symbol of the suffering man or the uh, individual, as the, 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 uh, the cross symbol uh, indicates. You know, the cross symbol is, of course, the figure of a, a suffering human god nailed to a cross um uh in indicating that that's sort of the process of adaptation in the world where and the cross being the world and that's why it's made of a tree a natural object and that's what humans are tethered to but so why would a dead snake what would that mean on on a, on a sort of cross well i wonder if that means if what Sephiroth is sort of representing here is the incapacity to transform, the negative hero, the Cain. I know I've been bringing this up and sort of circling around this. And so maybe that's why I'm looking at it in this way, because it could very well have a broader symbolism. But that this snake being dead is like the element of transformation being dead in either what Sephiroth represents 
or or um in in himself that um yes that uh he is that it is a symbol of the anti-hero antichrist yeah. that it represents one's refusal to adapt to the situation and one's attempt to make the situation adapt to them or something like that uh what do you have to say on that i'm sorry oh no yeah that because that's that's what brought it to my mind that's like that image of the snake on the uh it's like a tree um that's been sharpened to a stake and yes. and it's it's literally it's literally um uh impaled but upside down uh the yeah. snake is sort of lolling you know um and it's huge right so uh and then you have to look up at it the camera sort of pans up when you get there and you see the lightning in the background right um, that makes me think of Quetzalcoatl, who is yeah. a GF that we see in Final Fantasy VIII, as well as sort of Zeus. And so uh -huh. I just want to add uh -huh. that in there because that lightning definitely does happen, even if you keep looking up at it. The lightning will yeah. keep hidden. So that's part each of the time. Image. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Each time that you each time that you go and check the snake, it'll it'll pan up and it'll do that same exact thing. It reminded me also within the game of going back to that really mysterious, creepy. Um, cutscene thing that you can observe uh in the sector six um slums in the honeybee inn there's like the sound of lightning uh and thun well, thunder i guess going on in that dark room that you can sort of peer through the the keyhole of um when they're talking about all the promised land uh fantasy i guess that president shinra has uh anyway so there's there's that it's like it's like almost overly dramatic right like each right. time that you that you go there it will play the same little cutscene over and over to the point where you know it sort of loses its um yes. its initial shock after a certain number of <laughs> of times but at the same time um that image never gets old right there's something about these right. these archetypal images you can see them over and over and they never lose their their shock of the new right like each time that you see a snake you're going to freak out. And if it's a huge giant snake, like a dragon that's been impaled, then you're going to freak out even more because whoever did that is, is beyond, you know, normal, uh, is, is beyond anything that you could uh, capture in words, right? According to Cloud's story. So, so it has the, that element of it, like that the perpetrator of this is even more monstrous than the monster. Right. right. Exactly. And, yeah, it just uh, several amplifications that pop into my mind as you speak are that, of course, this is Sephiroth killing another dragon in mm -hmm. front of us. Um, and, um, and so we are reminded again of his utter strength and again, the monster that can kill monsters. And that seems to be the, uh, the as Dante would say, the treasonous or the traitor, traitorous or the Jerion like fraudulent human. Because mm -hmm. just as the mind is the tool which can create tools, then, of course, the the monster with access to a mind, which only a human is, is the monster that can create new monsters. And that seems to be part of the Lilith myth as well. But just a couple more things about that is we see Sephiroth has killed another dragon this time, but this time a terrestrial dragon. Yeah. And also possibly suggesting that um, he, like the snake, has sloughed off his physical skin because that will be a motif coming mm -hmm. in. But also reminding me that in recognizing the danger of the snake, one receives the warning signs of the coming storm. If I were to articulate this, the, the situation, Cloud observes the danger of what he's doing. He clearly recognizes that 
he is on the path of the hero. The signs are too obvious. <laughs> There's yeah. even thunder and lightning in the skies and a giant dead snake. It's essentially the dark forest saying, do not come in here. Right. If you are not prepared to walk the path of the hero. And, um, and so what else about that snake? Um, yes. If you stare at the snake, you see the signs of danger. And so, uh, so uh, one thing Cloud is beginning now to do in pursuing Sephiroth is he, he is starting to pursue his own identity because he, he will be led towards finding signs of anomaly or threat in, into his own existence. And um, at first, he, like all humans, it seems, projects that outward. It must be some external figure who, if I stop him, it will save the world. And that seems to be what the yeah. hero's journey seems like when we're young. You know, we're like a Pokemon trainer who's going to save the world. Or we're a Contra fighter who's going to save the world. Or we're going to play in Mortal Kombat or Street Fighter and save the world. But it seems like what Cloud is going to learn, what, and what we all have to learn as individuals, is that you have to save yourself and face yourself and face the dragon within yourself before you're prepared to save the world, as it were. It's as if you have to embody that transformative principle in order to teach those around you through imitation to fish for themselves rather than to just offer them fish, like your own aphoristic thoughts while sitting back fat, <laughs> thinking yourself a master. It's like right. you, you have to have excellent sparring partners around. You need the Fab Five from Kung Fu Panda or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's we a powerful wanna, image. Yeah, go on. Well, no, yeah, just that, that one of the things about Sephiroth, right, is that he is sort of alone. Um, obviously, he's he's captured taken with him now the remains of jehovah Genova, whatever but, <laughs> but what he does on his on his journey in lieu of having people with him he leaves the these bodies in his wake right we saw it before with shinra himself impaled on the sword um at the top of the tower um but even um more significant later on will be eris right that yes. when sephiroth Sephiroth kills people they stay dead yes uh, and, and they and they bleed you know which is like a thing that wasn't really in many video games um until until around this time i guess they started to actually include some of this content which would have been deemed inappropriate uh before right and and so there's like there's there's a weight to that there's there there's like a real consequence you don't just get to um, bring them back to life after Sephiroth kills them, they stay, they stay dead. Yeah, the, the just, to, just to continue to expand on the sort of mythological amplifications we started on with the snake, and Sephiroth seems to be very much like a lunar figure as opposed to Cloud's solar figure, whereas Cloud has, uh, he is facing reality, or at least that's a claim we'll make, and has blonde hair like the sun. So, uh, Sephiroth has silver hair like the moon and is in a cloak of black and brings death with him. So he seems like a figure of nature or death or sort of like Artemis in her Hecate um, form that he brings about the un that which once it happens cannot change. And I do think that that's so interesting that you said that about him, that when he kills people stay dead. So there's, there is, there is an actual frightening aspect to him being in the game because you do get invested in these people in a, in a very real way, or these characters, like you, you invest materia, you arrange them, you try and develop them uh, in terms of strength. Like you invest time, real time and real emotion into them because while you're playing that game, and maybe we can talk about this more if we want to get at a slightly less abstract and then more abstract level, is that like you're playing 
while you're playing these games, while you're indulging in gameplay with them, you are experiencing frustration and anxiety and hope and uh, all these emotions, your ancient brain, your limbic system is active. Like when I was trying to catch these damn chocobos, I was on, I like, I was on pins and needles hoping that I, you know, because I had things to do with my day and I couldn't spend all day catching chocobos. So I had to definitely kill these creatures and, oh no, I accidentally hit the chocobo and it ran off and, oh no, I didn't throw at the greens and even though i bought these fifteen hundred dollar greens i end up catching it with two hundred dollar greens yeah and, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's like it's funny because it's like i'm playing this game for fun but how i'm talking is like i'm talking about having like a kind of stressful day <laughs> yeah no it's that, that i love that the game um it sort of it sort of switches it up at that point right like because up till then the way you win battles is by killing the enemies and that's that and and now it's like Okay, wait. There's this other. There's this other thing. This little wrinkle thrown in. Here's an enemy that you can't kill, so you've got to get away from it. You can see this enemy on the screen, though, so that's helpful, right? That's the first enemy like that that you can actually see out there. It's not just a random encounter, all right. right. And and then the game provides you the way the way to dodge that that serpent um, that bounces around in the swamp is by catching a chocobo. How do you do that? Well, so then you got to learn like this new method of fighting like you described. You might have never even used an item up to this point in battle. Right. And I don't even remember how to throw an item. I, yeah. I experienced great anxiety because <laughs> of this. And so it's sort of like, it's like teaching you like, okay, like there's more you can do in this game. Like you can use items. Here's a fun way to use items. You can, um, you can ride chocobos around and, and it changes the music and you get to like sort of glide around the map really fast. It's, it's just fun, like, yeah, but also frustrating. <laughs> well, that's really interesting because it's almost as if what the game teaches you and teaches you how to do is how to approach unknown territory in a constrained and bounded environment like a classroom. Um, uh -huh. What it does is it, it provides something new, anomalous for you, which is in the what the Piagetians call the zone of proximal development. That means just beyond your skill level, but possible for you to uh, acquire. So like hitting a bench press PR five pounds over what you've done or doing a squat faster in a minute than you've ever done before. Something you have not done before, uh, but you do have the potential to do, but you have not done yet is mm -hmm. the zone of proximal development. And so you have to catch this chocobo. And so, well, it, it will tell you something about your temperament, how you approach <laughs> this task, right? Do you prepare a bunch of, do you get a bunch of the most expensive greens? Do you just get one green? Do you get five greens in preparation um do you uh count up how many times you have to kill the specific enemies in order to know just exactly which ones to hit how many times in order to maximize your chance of catching the chocobo and what emotions do you feel hope excitement at catching a chocobo finally or like me anxiety and frustration because i think one thing the game provides for you if you can be sensitive to it and especially with the adult gamers like us now is that can tell you something about how you approach the world because oh, yeah. in our everyday, we find ourselves in domains that are fairly bounded by our expectations. Like when you're on the road, you pretty much know what's going to happen most of the time. And when it doesn't go that way, well, you experience a lot of chaos um, and, and a lot of frustration if someone like cuts you off and you didn't expect it. Or, or, or there's a biker who just goes by you that you didn't see at all and you're all of a sudden flustered and scared. But in this game, you're given tasks that you didn't expect that you're not necessarily good at performing immediately that seem to sort of hamper you on your way to where you're going. Yeah. But that's also what they do to you in, say, Navy SEAL BUDS training. They continue to load cognitive tasks on you when you have an, a superordinate goal to see whether your mentality breaks. And so something I've been learning about myself 
and that I've been trying to be honest with with you guys is that since I have fairly limited time right now because I'm attempting to to really do a lot and become more efficient while I do it, but I'm not quite there. So I'm in sort of a perpetual state of pro, uh, proximal development right now, which means I'm sort of on edge. <laughs> yeah. uh, is that I'm sort of like hurrying through the game and not savoring yeah. it as much. So when small things come up, which are the game itself and which are life itself, the moments that are life and the small steps along the journey are annoying steps for me, are annoyances. And so life manifests because I'm going too fast in it as an anxiety inducing and frustration inducing series of distractions. It's yeah, it's the it's kind of the 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 paradox of of approaching what might be perfection, right? Like the closer mm -hmm. that you get, the more each small minor thing will will jar, will agitate you. And and the more that you try to optimize it right, which is the thing that materia sort of gets you to do, right? You sort of see how you can arrange it just right. And all these little items and things you can find, uh, equipments and weapons and all of that stuff, right? The game sort of, it, it leads you into um, a field of, of possible improvements at all times. You can always get a little better, a little stronger, a little faster. And, and, even little now, money. and to this, to this now there's, there's a, there's a little cottage industry of people who play games and stream them right and like show the videos of them doing these like nigh impossible feats within the game and that is like their job or at least like a serious hobby um because people are fascinated by seeing anything done really well right it's like it's interesting we yeah we and actually our domain of competencies watching somebody expand their domain of competency within a human construct a totally humanly constructed virtual world with yeah. rules far less complex than, uh, than say, uh, reality's rules. And yeah, so, they're you know, circumscribed. Yeah, circumscribed, very much so. Very good, like within a mandala. Yes. Something sort of along that line that I just wanted to mention, because um, we do talk about education here to some extent, and we are talking about how we increase our domains of competency. And I would make the additional claim that as we increase our domains of competency, we become more secure in the world. And as evidence, I would use the leveling system in the RPG, that as you become stronger and your material becomes stronger and your experience gets higher and you get better equipment, you become more confident in your movements throughout the world, even capable of defending, defeating great enemies like uh, Emerald Weapon at some point. You become safer through becoming more confident. But something I, I, I noticed about learning, which uh, I think is sort of key, is that we've made the claim before that often you embody knowledge before behaviorally, before you can represent it visually or artistically, and then even before you can articulate it. And so something I noticed is that I, I acquired the elemental materia and I had totally forgotten what it did. And so I just randomly assigned it to Red 13. It was totally the same childish strategy I used when I was a kid and I, I assigned it to fire. And so this is yeah. how crazy it is about learning, how I understand that action is the path towards uh, change in the world rather than simply thinking um, because with red 13 I had him attack a monster that he then dealt uh, he healed he did like oh, no. 60 healing damage to it <laughs> and I was like why did that happen did he have like a fire pendant on and then only after that did I investigate in that uh -huh. sort of Mina situation uh, his materia and his materia because his his weapon had no element 
uh, attributed to it. And then I saw that Elemental was linked to fire, and I figured that that was applied to his weapon, and that's what caused him to heal that creature because it must have had an immunity uh, to fire. And the only reason I, I gathered that information from that situation is because I is not because I understood the situation, but rather because I did not understand what was yeah. happening. And I recognized that I didn't understand why that had happened. And it made me like, uh, like Sherlock Holmes trying to track down a murderer, try and figure out what had caused that anomaly within yeah. my performance. I, that, so what that makes me think of is when you first get to the Chocobo farm, you can talk to the Chocobo. Did you talk to the Chocobo? See, I tried to, but I couldn't get the right angle. And again, I got frustrated and time is money here. So I tried, doesn't it throw out a piece of materia too? I yeah. think I even remember that. I, okay, I'm going to have to go back there from June yeah. on. Oh, yeah. man. The first summon materia that you can get. It's oh so my gosh. Good. I am it's... missing everything in this game. <laughs> and the funny thing about it is, it's like you said, you, you don't actually articulate. You just make a sound that a chocobo makes, right? But you have to make the right sound. You don't have to know what it means or what the difference is. But one of the sounds, if you make it, the chocobo gives you the materia. And the other sound, if you make it, it doesn't. It doesn't do its little dance. It doesn't give you the materia until you get it. Yeah. So you have to correctly imitate the chocobo. Mm -hmm. You have to embody the sound that it makes correctly. And it seems that there is a form to that sound and there is a correct way to do it. And if you do it correctly, you receive the benefit. Whereas if you don't, you don't. It's sort of like practice what you preach or... Uh, how you practice is how you're going to play. Like the magic is, is very difficult to get. And so, it's, yeah, well, yeah. I mean, it's not, it's not that it's difficult. It's just that it's neither difficult nor easy. It's just sort of like, it's arbitrary almost. Mm -hmm. It's like, you just have to try things. You have to do weird, you have to go and talk to things and um, try all the different combinations. Right. Because what do you know? That's yeah. uh, because you, you, the, the whole process of playing a video game is a process of exploration. And if you're running through it as I am and not exploring, it's like, what is the point of doing it? Yeah. <laughs> and that is sort of a revelation I had when I was thinking uh, uh, about prehistory today. I was reading in the London Review of Books, uh, a review of a book about uh, 100,000 to 10,000. And genetic research is just really hipping us to quite a few things, um, uh, especially how populations change especially and they, it seems that now dna researchers have it down cold that it is not due to acculturation but rather through migration and often through the migration of do, uh dominant invading males and native population women like think of the vikings think of south america for example um and that's that's cold hard evidence at this point which is sort of interesting to think about um just how many different fields are now converging on what human nature could be based on evolutionary influences at mm -hmm. this point. But um, something that I wanted to touch on that I never noticed about this, especially because we just finished the Potter's Pockets, uh, Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets, where we see, of course, a phoenix at the end and yeah. fighting a basilisk, a symbol of transformation, very much like the, the Zolom uh, that we have here um, as Zolom, right? <laughs> yeah. 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 And, and, um, and also there are roosters that can kill the basilisk. We found out they got killed. And so I finally found, figured out that, oh, the Chocobo versus Zolom is just like the rooster versus ba basilisk myth that we see in fantasy and Harry Potter that came out of a very similar 
time to um to uh to, to Final Fantasy VII. Final Fantasy VII came out in 1997. I th- I think didn't Harry Potter come out the same year? Um, yeah, around the same time. I don't know exactly, but yeah, well, it's um, it seems like the 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 bird uh dragon snake thing is definitely at work there. Um, and again, you don't you don't actually defeat the the monster in this case. You you avoid it only to find that it's been you know stuck on a pole to um, to terrify you before you proceed. Yeah. Right. Right. I was thinking about those two different approaches, those two different approaches, like where where Sephiroth clearly takes the path of violence and threat. Uh, Cloud sort of wisely takes the path of skill, like to use the instrument available to bypass the danger that might be too much for him. Yeah. But that, that also might be a specific adaptation to the situation because Sephiroth is still at this point clearly much stronger than cloud is so he has a lot of developing to do but um so i guess i had one i, I have a couple of questions and uh you know i have notes here on we do see the turks and again they mm-hmm. emphasizing the role of transformation they they tell us that their their role has transformed whereas uh cloud sort of flatly says yeah we know what you do uh kidnapping right now they've been tasked with stopping the former avalanche forces from getting to sephiroth and finding sephiroth himself They've essentially been given the same task from a different angle that uh, Avalanche has. They, they yeah. sort of are being asked to walk the path of the hero, but for Shinra, for the sort of capitalist supergiants. <laughs> they're, they're like your alter ego in a way. And they, they each have, you know, a sort of distinct personality, I guess, but, they, but they're so uniform in other respects. Right. Um, they do wear uniforms, but each of them has very particular headwear reno with that red hair rude with that bald head sing with that long hair and elena is the girl with that blonde hair so they yeah they are a little more differentiated than the average npc but um i just it's very interesting that everybody in the world seems to be recognizing that something is changing like you mentioned last time with president shinra dying and uh people in com being seemingly slightly oblivious it's as if the we were at the epicenter of the change. We were right there when it started to happen, and it's slowly rippling out, and almost as if Sephiroth is sort of a representation of that effect. Oh, wow. I never thought of it that way. Um, mm-hmm. His effect on the world is sort of the effect of the murder of President Shinra, and I wonder to what extent the idea might be that his son murdered him because, of course, Sephiroth is disembodied. I don't know, just to get kind of conspiracy theory for a second there before I rein myself in. Um, but I mean, he is a disembodied force at this point. Is that correct? I, I mean, he, he leaves a trail of blood. Right, um, and people see him walking too. They, they, they mention, oh yeah, a man in black cape went by before, you know. So yeah, the, he, he's a kind of, um, well, here, here's the thing. One thing about the the little scene with the Turks, I found it interesting that you don't fight them there. Um, mm-hmm. there, there isn't a boss battle that that takes place in that little scene, um, and they're slightly comical the way that they uh, crawl, they shimmy up the the roots, you know, um, to to leave the screen right. before you. Uh, but again, that's like what your characters do also. So 
it's sort of a, a funny little reflection. Um, except of course, Elena, she's up at that, like that bit of the, the cliff where you can't actually reach. Um, you can never, you can never actually set foot on that part of the scenery that she has been on. Um, so I found that kind of interesting, especially since you just get uh, the long range materia, like right before that in one of the right. other chambers, there's, there's, there's something going on with, um, yeah, like perspective or right. like she does like touch. Yeah. Yeah. And I think she shares a perspective that we could not have attained without her from on high, like Beatrice sharing that information oh, yeah. that she does actually against the will of Singh provide information that uh, about where, where they're heading off to, um, <laughs> and which she's super irritated about. She's apparently a Turk, but she doesn't quite understand how to be a Turk. Yeah, yeah. Right. She wants to do a good job. She doesn't quite get how to be like pro properly stoic and like not say much, you know, cause they're like sort of tough and don't say a lot usually. But, right, yeah. right, right. And so I guess, I guess we could con conclude with uh, two, two things today because I, I know we're super busy and we got things to do. And so we got, we have, we have to use that sort of, uh, what is that? The rhetorical device of the ineffable or the, oh, the unutterable. We just never have enough time. We have no never have enough time, reader, to tell you all that we have. But I'd like to talk about what exactly the idea of a summon is. What the heck is a summon? Um, because it seems sort of like a, a, you summon a god. And in fact, many of the summons do have the names of gods, like Shiva and yeah. in Final Fantasy VIII, Quetzalcoatl. It's as if you manifest the thought so anomalous that you do extreme damage like traumatic damage to the mental representations of the world to, uh, uh, to the enemies that you confront. Though, of course, the mental representation would be manifested as physical damage to them in the context of a, a, a battle or something like that. And then Junon, I wanted to talk about sort of the effects of Midgard because unlike Calm, we find a city where everybody's talking about Shinra, but that only Shinra people come. It's a company town. It's like a factory town. And uh, there's just a very odd sort of cutscene that you get involved in in the beginning with a, a girl with a dolphin who is a friend who then gets separated from the girl by a sea serpent that then harms the girl, that then you have to fight the sea serpent, not a very difficult fight. And then you have to do CPR, another one of those annoying mini games that takes a while to do, except at least if you're me and maybe what that means. It's a very odd sort of sense there, Dionysian in a way. but um. Yeah, summons. What well, gives? What is a summon? Before that, yeah. there is one more. There's one more point about that that I find kind of interesting. The um, so you get the the Midgar serpent, you get the chocobo, then you get the um, the condor right at Fort ah, Condor. Yes, yes. giant bird, and a bunch of the enemies in this area are birds also. Um, right, and then you come to Junon, which is the sea serpent. Right, so there's like a bird snake bird snake thing going on there. Right. And the condor and is very much like a phoenix when it's yeah. born later. The the idea that you bring this girl back to life, right, with right. you you raise her and there's this other reference, I don't know how intentional this would be, but there is a literal a semi-literal reference to a snake on a pole in the Old Testament um the uh, Moses has to make a bronze snake and hold it mm -hmm. up on a pole, right? And that's that's ref that's referenced back. Um, that's one of the the types that later Christians see, like that prefigures Christ. They say, you know, and I think uh, he even says this maybe in in the Book of John. Um, 
just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the son of man must be lifted up. Right. So there's, there's like a, a pretty clear, um, like appeal to the, the idea of the snake as the regenerating force, like you're talking about, right? Like identifying that with uh, a more, a more developed, more sophisticated understanding later of like, that's what the, the suffering hero is like, right? Yes. And that, 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 that transformation, that rebirth can then be sort of like instilled, inspired into others. Um, maybe that's going too far, but you, you do the CPR on the girl and she, she sure enough comes back to life. Right. So it's yeah. like, yeah, you're dealt the problem that you are avail that you are capable of dealing with in that moment in terms of consciousness. And that seems to be a point that Peterson in his 1996 Harvard lectures make that develop, depending on how developed your world map is, that's how developed your problems will be. And so Cloud hasn't been on the path of the hero too long or hasn't accepted this new transformed responsibility except for recently, but this is direct evidence of the fact that he's on the right way. And like, like you're saying, we have all these examples. The Zalem, a symbol of transformation because a snake is a symbol of transformation because it sloughs off its skin. And the, con or the condor, which is like the phoenix, which is a symbol of transformation because the phoenix uh, dies and is reborn from its own ashes. And then just to add to that, Junon is itself a place with a giant cannon sort of sticking out, not the big one that will, but sort of a phallic image of shooting into the water, which is the great mother, like mm. how like the great father as culture is the father and then later son of the hero through the hero copulating by going through a night sea journey like Heracles through the unknown as manifested as the great water um, or Tiamat or the ocean in this case. And so he carves out who he is and thus new territory and thus the new great father through his interaction with the unknown. And so you see Cloud uh, saving somebody, right, out of nowhere too and for no reason. He's not getting paid to save this person. That's a question we haven't even considered lately, right? He's transformed so much that we don't even think about the fact that he's still a bounty hunter uh, because yeah. he's not a bounty hunter in our minds. He's pulled a Han Solo. He's no longer this, you know, runaway scum from his responsibilities. He's accepted responsibility. And so there's a new standard by which we judge him. And it seems as if even the world is manifesting itself to him and thus us as a player very differently now with these symbols of transformation being everywhere. Almost, almost as if we're sort of like uh, <laughs> neurally or psychologically primed uh, to see to when we are on the appropriate path, see signs of the fact that we are on the appropriate path. Uh, see, see people in terms of specific roles that a hero would see. Oh, this is a nice NPC who can give me information in order to complete the subtask so that I can uh, get the item I need to defeat the local boss in order to, to win my superordinate goal of destroying all evil in the world or something like that, or all the evil in the kingdom, or yeah. saving... The princess of the kingdom who has been lost and so I, I i think you're right i think you nail on the head that um what we're seeing here is is cloud's transformation into a hero and his initial manifestations of the hero archetype within this specific world and what's interesting about that is the first place we'll come to is the first uh test that odysseus runs into in the odyssey it's the the lotus eaters he runs into the vacation town across the water uh where yeah. i think costa del sol Right, and all, that's also the island of the sun, which is the last place that uh, that uh, Odysseus has to contend with before he's taken uh, by storm to the Phaeacians. Um, and so, and so uh, that's very interesting. That you know, after your initial successes, I suppose the big 
the big uh, 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 the next big obstacle is lethargy or sitting back on your initial success as if you have completed the path of the hero because you have completed one step on the path of the hero. Yeah. Um, yeah. It seems like, yeah, there's something interesting going on where first you, you pass the swamp. You can't really go back from that point. Right. Obviously you can't go back into Midgar yet. And so with each sort of stage of the journey, and then as you say, when you, when you cross the water after Junon, th there's a kind of um, new plateau Right, you start out again at the bottom of a new area and have to um, explore that territory and and overcome um, all the the wiles of the game that it throws at you, frustrating or uh, or outright terrifying as they may be. Um, <laughs> yeah, I there's there's more to this episode. Yeah, like we didn't get to talk much about Fort Condor or Yuffie. Did you get Yuffie? Oh my gosh, I'm missing everything. I didn't get the summon. I didn't get Yuffie. And actually, I have a question. I didn't have Ares in my party, which is very interesting too, because I'm like sort of like the contemporary or the, the father of the last age, right? Who, who you have a choice how you spend your time. And even though I will be sad when Ares dies, I'm not choosing to spend as much time with her as I could. And so I'll suffer the sort of situation that one has if like, say, a loved one dies and they think, oh, I could have been there so much more. Where have my values been? But Singh says that he had something special to say if I had Ares in my party. Did you have Ares in your party when you encountered the Turks? No, I, I, like, I like her in certain situations as a party member, but generally I don't, I don't walk around with her in my party, unfortunately. So, no, I don't know. I, I think that's something we can look up, though. I'm sure that that's a thing we can find out, what that, what that little exchange would have been. We need to summon Vince. We have so many cracks in the, it's, the old it's an, here without him. That's an intriguing thing, though, right? Where the game lets you know that there was another thing you could have done and you didn't do it. So too bad. You know, it's like, man, that that's really that really gets your curiosity going, right? So yeah, and that seems to be life too. It's like just as you can miss opportunities in the game that don't necessarily yeah. come back or don't come back quickly, or that you don't even notice you missed unless your friend notes it to you like so many homework assignments in high school for me and at a, every other level of school let's be honest and um but that you know just like in life if you're not being aware if you're rushing through you're going to miss you're going to miss the things that make the game worth playing that make life worth living and so then i guess i have to offer myself as a negative example and perhaps i need to play this game a little more thoroughly um <laughs> But there's always that trade-off, right? Like, because the game, I mean, this is part of the game, but there's the bigger That's right. game, right? That's so, right. Yeah. It doesn't but do the loose. game is a microcosm of the bigger game, too. Yeah. yeah. That does, that will require some thought. Yes. Yes. No, no I, your thoughts are valid, and I'll keep them in mind, but I do think I need to proceed with more care. Not, not I mean, cautiously, but, but with attentiveness. You definitely got to go back and, and meet Yuffie before you proceed too much further. If yeah, you can. I think, yeah, I think I might have to alter some plans tonight. Let's, <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, Wes. And uh, again, uh, congratulations on finishing your first solo project. 33 Thanks. whole episodes. Very Dante-like number. Maybe you'll have to go back and make a special introduction, one where you talk about being lost in a forest before starting this game. Um, <sighs> Yeah. Uh, yeah. And uh, 
I'd like to, um, I did purchase on iTunes Akira, so I would like to talk about sort of influences on this game at some point too, potentially for next episode. That was something I know we planned to do when Vince was still on, but that's something I'd still be interested in doing with you. And maybe talk about Dragon Ball Z too in relation, because I, I do seem to recall that there was a major debate at all times between like who was strongest, Cloud and Sephiroth or Vegeta and Goku and Battle of the <laughs> Pointy-haired, blonde, pe- super beans. Right. Um, <laughs> and I, I mean, yeah. in Kingdom Hearts, Sephiroth and Cloud take on, you know, like, godlike proportions. Yeah. Fighting in beams of light and such. Gosh, yeah. So that's that could be a special episode then, yeah. Uh, at least one. Um, probably more. Yeah, sounds good. Yeah. Okay, well, next time maybe we can talk about uh, Tifa stealing our hearts and get to that next continent, get to that new that new map. Right on. All right. All right. Can't wait. Thanks again. Thank you. Bye. See ya.